How big is God? How big and wide his vast domain? To try to tell, these lips can only start. He's big enough to rule this mighty universe. Yet small enough, what a humbling thought, to live within my heart. I feel like I have a task in this new series called Big God. I feel like I have a task like Charles Spurgeon wrote it decades ago. I feel as though it would be easier to walk out into the ocean and dip it empty, a thimble full at a time. That's an easier task than to talk to you about how big God is. My mind doesn't wrap itself around the loftiness, the bigness of my great big God. Isaiah is going to help us to see that God in the 40th chapter, if you'd like to open your Bibles there. I'd like to set this chapter up this way by saying to you, about 25 years ago, Elaine and I were encouraged by mentors that we had to get some counseling training. And it was thoroughly biblical counseling training. It transformed our life and ministry. And what we discovered after that training is that God started bringing into our lives people who were trying to handle life and its issues. There were people since that training and almost weekly ever since that training yet to this day who either call us or come by or walk by the office when I'm here and say, I need help. I am spent emotionally. And many of those, in fact, most of those who are spent emotionally are thoroughly spent because someone whom they trusted had broken their hearts, and more often than not, it's been in spousal relationships. Others have come by, by the way, my mind goes immediately when I think of those who've been broken by spousal relationships. It goes immediately to, our, uh, to a gal who came by the church where we had freshly hung out a sign that said counseling ministry here. She stopped by and the gal's name was Jackie and she said, Larry, my marriage is a month old and it's over. While we were on our honeymoon, my son, or my hubby was calling, my bridegroom was calling his secretary. And when we got back, he continued a relationship with her. And she said to me, I came by on my way to commit suicide when I saw the sign out front. Jackie, that day, by the way, accepted Christ, became a strong follower of the Lord Jesus. But she walked in the door, emotionally spent. Somebody broke her heart beyond measure. Others in our culture, you know, they're all around you, and some within our own body are walking through this in this recession. They are financially spent. 
not necessarily because they've wasted what God has entrusted into their care, but because of the culture that we live in, all is lost and all is gone. I am spent. What do I do? Over the years, we've been able to counsel those who are physically spent, many who heard that big C word that none of us want to hear. Others have had diseases of other kinds. My mind goes to my middle sister, who at age 53 went home to be with the Lord, dying of the disease called ALS. You know this Lou Gehrig's disease. Do we have any hope for someone who has been physically spent? I think you should answer that, church. Oh, yeah, we do. And others are mentally spent. Their minds are so consumed with all that's happened in life that all they can think about is how bad it is in this life. I'm sinking in the storm. What do I do? And then there are those, of course, who are spiritually spent. Who, when honest, walk in the doors and sometimes, we don't like to admit it, but sometimes life becomes so pressing, so big, that in the back of our minds, there's that question. Could God be any farther away? If you take the mindset of those who are emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually spent, they have one bottom line question. It is this, how big is God? Is he bigger than what's overwhelming me right now? And you and I would go, well, well of course he is. Yet until... Like the Indian said, you walk a mile in my moccasins. Don't answer too quickly. Do you really believe he's big enough? My mind goes to the children of Israel at the door of the promised land. Well, actually, it's a little bit before that. They're at the Red Sea. They look ahead, headed toward the promised land, but they can't get there. There's a big body of water, the Red Sea. They turn to go to the right and to the left, but they can't because there are mountains on both sides. That million plus people couldn't cross those mountains. So they turn to go back and go around the mountains to get to the other side of that big sea. And what do they see? Clouds of dust billowing in the sky from the horsemen and chariots of Pharaoh's army. Here we are, chosen children of God, hemmed in by the sea, the mountains, and the enemy. We have no hope. So what do they do? When they lose hope, when things are not going the way they hoped and planned, they turn on the servant of God. This might be a good time just to stop since I've not forgotten my goal here. 
Larry is not just sitting at ease waiting for something to happen. Larry's preparing hard for your next servant. And my caution is, when he gets here, be very careful when the mountains are towering, the sea is before you, and the enemy behind you, and you're hemmed in again. Be very careful not to turn on the servant of God. That's what the heart is prone to do. And here's the deal. They turned on the servant of God. And they said, Moses, it's your fault. We are hemmed in on every side. If you hadn't led us out of Egypt where we had it so good. Yeah, that's the way I remember the history of Israel. Beaten and driven by whips. Slaves of people who've overpowered them. They're powerless in, in their presence. No, not a good thing. When they turned on Moses, you know what they had forgotten? God with mighty hand, with ten powerful, miraculous signs, had changed the heart of a hard-hearted, callous king. Only big God could do that. And if big God can change the heart of a callous Pharaoh, then big God could get me out of this jam where I'm hemmed in on every side. They stood at the Red Sea and forgot how big God is. My beloved, at that point, it can successfully be argued, Israel lost her light. And at whatever point, I'm so emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, and mentally spent, that I feel there's no hope and no way out. At that moment, I've lost my light and I need to be called back to the light. That's what this series is about. God calling his people, both Israel of old and us today as we look at Isaiah 40, God calling us back to be light to remember how big God is, no matter how weak we feel or hemmed in we ever feel. My God is bigger than anything life throws at me. If I didn't believe that, I'd get out of this quick. If it weren't for the good money that I'm paid. Are you here? Oh, beloved. It's all about us being light, conveying how big. Our God is. Now all I'm going to do today is set Isaiah 40 up for you. It's just an introductory time in which I'm going to ask you to take a look at the author himself. You know something about the book by the name of the book. What's the name of the book? In case you never knew this. All the books in the Old Testament that are named after a man have a specific genre. And that genre is, they are prophetic books written by the prophets of God. There are major ones you've heard of. Ezekiel, 
Jeremiah, the one we're in, Isaiah. There are minor ones. Names a little harder to pronounce. Is it Habakkuk? It's not Malachi, it's Malachi. Amos, Obadiah. There's some very familiar names, right? Well, we know their names, we just don't know where to find them. We just know the minor ones are in the back part of the Old Testament. You know something about the book by the author's name? It's from a prophet who not only foretold God's truth, but foretold the future. We'll get to that in a second. Isaiah is a book that's quoted at least 21 times by Christ and by his apostles. That's more than all the other, listen carefully, prophets put together. It seems to me that if Christ and his apostles quoted Isaiah more than any other Old Testament prophet, we ought to get familiar with that book and that prophet, right? Because it has something to do with Christ and why he came. We'll talk about that in a little bit. By the way, there is one book that was quoted more than the book of Isaiah, but it's not written by a prophet. And that book, of course, in the New Testament, quoted more by Christ and his apostles than any other book. We know it as the Psalms or the book of Psalms. Don't get me sidetracked about music. The only book quoted more is Psalms. So I think we ought to know something about this author. He was a man primarily noted for his vision of the Lord in the sixth chapter. And we're not going to read that. It's not our text. But it is important to observe that he had this great vision when in the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet writes, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he goes on to tell us that the angels, when he saw the Lord, he heard the angels singing, angels who had their feet covered, angels who had their face covered by two wings, and angels who were fluttering around the throne with the other two wings, those angels that were shouting constantly and singing unceasingly a song that was repetitive. Did you hear that? I seldom like the criticism that songs are too repetitive. You know why? Because of where we're parked. Unceasingly, night and day, God is pleased when his creation says the same thing over and over and over. Holy, 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 Lord God. Almighty. And Isaiah saw that Lord high and lifted up in all of his splendor with all the angels fluttering around him and towering over him. They see him high on his throne. He saw him high and on his throne. And you cannot read the rest of the book without knowing this prophet was impacted by what he saw. Big God. our conversations I think my whole outlook on life 
would thoroughly be altered if I just read Isaiah the way he experienced it. I saw big God high and lifted up. The context of this great book, of this 40th chapter, is all about this great book when in chapters 1 through 39 he speaks of judgment and in chapters 40 through 66 he speaks of consolation. Now stay with me here. The book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the entire Bible. This is so sweet. The first 39 chapters correspond to the first 39 books of the Bible. We call it the Old Testament. And up through the 39th chapter, Isaiah does what the entire Old Testament does. He speaks of sin and of judgment because of sin. Genesis to Malachi does the same thing. God created man chose man for himself and what did man do? He sinned. And the rest of the Old Testament is about holy God's uh, dealing with that sin. And in the first 39 chapters, Isaiah specifically foretells God's judgment on Israel by the Assyrians. God uses an enemy kingdom to overthrow the chosen people and boy, I got to tell you, they lose their light and they lose their sense of big God by the time chapter 39 ends. But the last 27 chapters, the story flips. It's no longer a story, my beloved, of judgment on sin, but it's a story of comfort and consolation and the great consoler. The second half of that book is prophesied as having come to deal with our sin. Surely you remember in the heart of this last section of the book, those verses that go something like this, all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to our own way. But consolation. Big God, the Lord, has laid on him the sin of us all, the judgment of all of us, so that be consoled. You were saved and spared from judgment on your sin by the great consoler, the Lord Jesus. Amen? Big God does what only he can do. He deals with our sin. And you need to know there's a great theme in this book. I don't know what I'm doing with this, but forgive the pops here. Try to stay focused with me. There's a great theme in this book. And that theme revolves around the Holy One. The Holy One of, say it, church, the Holy One of Israel. Holy. 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 Lord God Almighty. 
I read early in the Old Testament that a man walks up to a bush that is burning. And the voice comes out of that bush that says, take off your shoes. The ground whereon you walk is saved. Now say it, choir. Again. The ground whereon you walk is one final time. made that ground holy? The fire that didn't consume the bush? No. The voice out of the flame and the bush that was not consumed. Holy God. Seems to me there's a man who comes down from a mountain, the same one who stood at the bush. And as it comes down from the mountain, the people were very fearful. What made them afraid? The smoke that they'd seen up on the mountain while their leader was gone, namely Moses? No, wasn't the smoke, wasn't even the thundering. It was what the thundering and the smoke shouted out to the people of God. Our leader is meeting with holy God. They knew it when he come from off the mountain and his face did glow with the glory of big, holy God. I read a commentator this week who laid the burden well on the shoulders of pastors for diluting in our current culture the view we have of God. I'm always thrilled to talk about the God who loves me and who loves you and the God who forgives me and the God who forgives you and the God who will deliver you from all your diseases and all the circumstances that you are spent because of. It's always a thrill to talk about that God. When all we do is talk about the commentators' right, pastors, you've led us to an unbalanced view of God. Because God is more than love. God is more than forgiving. God is more than grace. I've come to say our big God According to Isaiah, that is a microcosm of the entire Bible, God is primarily holy. So holy that not only does he not allow sin in his presence, he drives it away and he turns his back from it. Which is why the God who loved me so much was driven by his holiness to nail his son on the cross. His son who became my sin. And when he did at that moment, God turned his back on him until the son cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sebastianai. You get it? My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? 
You turned your eyes from me. You turned your back on me. For the first time from eternity past into time. For the first time and for the last time forever throughout eternity future. God turned his back on himself. His own son. Why did you do that, God? God answers through Isaiah's pen because I'm the Holy One of Israel. I cannot look upon sin. I cannot allow it in my presence. I am holy, distinct, and separate, pure, righteous God. And it's time we in this permissive culture understood that man is not free to violate the holy law of holy God but especially we who are his people are called to be holy because he is what? Holy. Be like your father. The great message to those who are far from him is holy God is so big that he made a way for you to be just like him. It's through his son you can be holy. That's the theme of this book. God to his people is holy and forever shall. Now the goal of the book. The prophet Isaiah, who's quoted more in all the New Testament than any other of the prophets, and all of them put together, says that God has a goal. and This is what I'm saying to you is the goal. It's found in verse 1 of Isaiah 40. It goes like this. Comfort, yes, comfort my people says your God. Let me read the next verse or two for you and with you. Speak comfort, Isaiah, to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What are chapters 1 through 39 about? Receiving double for your unholiness. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every child of his own. Why? To make him like him holy. God is done disciplining as chapter 40 opens. Aren't you glad we didn't study the first 39 chapters? We pick it up where God says, Isaiah, sure I'm holy. And I want my people to get it and I want them to be like I am. So tell them there's coming a day when all of their sin will be paid for. And therefore, they can respond with wow. 
So he says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. When God says something once, it's worth paying attention to, yo. When God says something twice, it's doubly worth paying attention to. And he's saying, they don't have to live under judgment forever. I want you to comfort them with what it is that brings comfort. The word comfort, some have suggested, comes from a couple of root words, which means to sigh deeply, or the way we put it, to breathe deeply. Have you ever had something scare you and take your breath away? I dropped Elaine off at the grocery store yesterday. She was just running in for a minute. 30 minutes later, she came out, and while I'm circling the parking lot looking for a parking place close, and you don't do that on Saturday, it just doesn't happen, there's no close parking place, I don't know why I even looked. I just drove around, and I'm sorry, but three drivers cut me off while I'm circling, and they were so close, especially one was so close, it literally did. The driver came across the lane that I was coming up and tried to beat me to a parking space that I wasn't even going toward. And I had to literally slam on my brake to keep from hitting that car. And when I did, you know what happened. I went... <gasps> As I slammed on the brake, and it took me a few seconds to let the breath out. When you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you go, <gasps> really terrifies you. But when you read just the opening verse from the heart of holy God in chapter 40, you let the breath out and say, ah. I don't care that she made it to her parking place. I'm just glad I didn't slam into the side of that car. Just relief. Get it? It's what, I, it's what God is doing for us in this 40th chapter. It's what the New Testament is all about. Comfort that comes from God. In spite of all in life, that causes me to be emotionally, physically, financially, mentally, and spiritually spent. In spite of all that life could throw at me, I can take a deep breath and let it out. There's genuine comfort coming. I'm going to leave you hanging there. We'll talk about the it just boils down to this. It boils down to comfort is, is found in a person. Jesus Christ, holy God, made flesh and dwelt among us. He's our source of consolation. Your turn. Just one statement. When you were stretched Emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, and or spiritually, or any other way, remember who your God is.
God is. Can I wrap it up this way? Well, I'm going to anyway without your permission. So It's like this, church. I know what it is to be walking on the mountaintop, to be spiritually walking on top of the water and all is going well. Walking toward my Savior and Lord and with my Savior and Lord, miraculously seeing him do some great things for me and I'm going, what a big job. And then over his shoulder, like Peter of old, I know what it's like to see the white, billowy clouds turn dark. I know what it's like to see the wind and feel the wind begin to blow. And so fierce is the storm that the waves roll. And as I turn to look at the waves and the billowing clouds and the torrents of rain, I start sinking in this storm, this thing called life. I continue to sink until, listen carefully, I know I'm dating myself when I say this, but until I turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, then the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. When I see big God, the storm calms right down. What a message of hope we have to take. You've got neighbors, you've got family, you've got friends. Sometimes there are even people sitting by you in church who were totally spent. The storm is all they see and it's all they can talk about. Transform their conversation, my beloved, by pointing them to omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy God. That's where we're headed in this study. I can't point them there if I'm not looking there. So do this with me. We're not going to sing. I'm going to ask you just to stand with heads and hearts bowed, please. Would you do this? Would you ask God to make of you, God's people, the chosen ones of this culture and day? Make of you who people, uh, people of light, who point others to God. Big God, they're not going to have any help or hope unless we get back to pointing people to the lofty, holy God who loves them so much, he wants to bring them out of their deep sorrow, their sense of being hemmed in on every side. Ask God to make you light and hope 
the one who introduces to a neighbor or a friend big God. Surely somebody's on your mind right now who's far from God who needs to see how big God is. Would you pray for boldness for yourself to talk to that one about big God? Maybe you're here, my friend. You're wondering where is God? The times you think he's the farthest from you, I've learned that the times when he's really the closest to me. Thank you for being big God close to you, wanting to console your mind and heart. And ask him for the grace to turn your eyes off of life and turn your eyes on him, big God. Ask him for faith to believe he's bigger than what you face. desire to be light to a culture that has no idea who you are, holy, lofty, loving God. Help us to be bold in communicating the consolation that comes only from you. Help us to abandon offering hope that comes from the opinions of men and to give only hope that comes from the pages of your book, which is where you alone Reveal your great comfort. Father, help us to turn people to you when life is destroyed. Make of us that kind of people for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray.